0: Um, But the the theme that we're in is the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, and we're answering big questions. And the question I'm answering this morning is, how could a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever been asked that? Have you ever been asked that at work or that family member who's always tripping you up? (laughs) If God was so loving, how could he send people to hell? So I'm answering that question this morning. And spoiler alert, the answer is he doesn't. Okay? That's the answer. He doesn't. But the answer to this question is actually an answer in doctrine. And so I'm going to do a bit of teaching. Are you ready for that? How could a loving God send people to hell? Right from the outset, we we see that God is inclusive. He's not exclusive. And even in the Old Testament, where he had his own people, the Israelites, and there was a code and a standard for them, he still made exceptions and welcomed people into the family of God. We see Caleb being brought in. We see Rahab being brought in. Anyone who had a heart for God was welcome into the family of God. He is not exclusive. God is inclusive. When we see Jesus on the cross of Golgotha with the two thieves on either side, one calls out to him, the other rejects him, and Jesus responds accordingly to the posture of their hearts. He is inclusive. And as I've been looking actually at each of these questions that we're answering, I've been amazed that my answer in my study to all these questions starts in Genesis. And so the same is true, I always have said that the answer to every question we have is found in one of two gardens, either Eden or Gethsemane. All our answers are found there. And so this morning, we're gonna go on a bit of a journey in answering this question, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I wanna start in Genesis, in the design and the initial ultimate plan of God. We see in Genesis that God creates the world. He creates it in perfection. And we can't, in this existence, in the fallen world we're in, fully understand or comprehend that degree of perfection. The garden had no thorns and no thistles in it. It didn't need to be toiled. It wasn't hard to to maintain. Man and woman were perfect. I mean, if you go to the gym regularly and you believe you're in pretty good shape, good on you, but you are still nothing compared to the specimen that Adam was. He was like perfection and Eve, oh my goodness. Like these these two were the ultimate perfection of God's design. And so he creates them in his own image. He creates an environment that's perfect. And as we heard from Pastor Cam last week, in the Old Testament, the language is Eden uh, language. We use heaven language now, but Eden was a depiction of perfection. And so we see this man and woman made in the image of God. And so I wanna focus actually as we get started on the fact that because we're made in the image of God, that's what sets us apart from the rest of creation is that we are the only part of creation that's made in his image. He's a triune God, we are triune beings as well. God created us with a mind, emotions, and a will. He created our minds with the ability to think and reason the way that he does. And he allowed us to have this capacity for sophisticated intellect. And he did it so that we could relate with him. The purpose of our intellect is relationship with God. He thinks, and so we think, and we can interact with him. He made us with emotions, some more in touch with their emotions than others. Yeah, I see the husbands and wives nudging each other, yeah. Some are more in touch with their emotions than others, but he made us with the, the capacity to feel because we're made in his image. And some people struggle trying to comprehend that God has emotion. But we see him grieve, we see him rejoice, we see him get angry, we see him extend all sorts of emotion, and we too have the capacity to feel and process in our emotion. But I wanna hone in on the will, we each have a will. And the will is the climax of this triune creation of men. The will is actually what incorporates the mind and the mo- emotion. So we think the morality of a situation, we feel in response to a situation, but it's the will that brings those together and actions us in one way or another. So we've all got a will where we make decisions. We make decisions and we act. And so free will is a foundational concept in what we believe as Christians. Free will. And that's why I have a bit of a problem with what's going on in the world at the moment, because free will and choice is the core of the way God set things up. And so he does this out of love. Because he wanted, listen, Because God wanted sincere and authentic relationship with you and I, free will was the only way he could achieve it. At the risk of us using our will to oppose him, he created us with the ability to choose to love and obey him. So he gave us free will. And so in his goodness, he epitomized love, by giving us free will. I love you. You're amazing. I want you to love me in return. And for that love to be authentic, you have to choose it. So he gives us a choice. And in his goodness, God, as I said, has created this perfect environment. He's put man in it and he puts, he gives everything to man, all of it. All of it belongs to man except one tree. And he puts in the garden these two trees. In Genesis 2, he planted two very important trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And here we see man's free will come into play because now, he not only has a will, he has something to choose between. There's no point giving someone a, a will and then no options. So God gives him options. It's like, I, you know, I, my kids are so good because I never give them an option. The most powerful thing we can do is understand God gave us the ability to choose. Choose. And so, in the presence of a choice, Adam starts to exercise his mind, his will, and his emotions. And God is good because he gave Adam very clear instructions. He explained the cause and effect. He said, There are two trees. If you eat from this one, you will surely die. God was very kind and very clear. Very kind and very clear. And so out of everything that Adam had access to, this was the one thing that was forbidden and the consequence was made clear to him. And you know what? It's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. God knows what's best for us still today. God gives us everything we need to thrive. He gives us everything we need to thrive. He hasn't left us alone. He's still with us, just like he was with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he is the source of our wisdom. He wants us to go to him when we make decisions. And there are consequences for our choices. It's still the same today and still the same as it was back then. God's ways are always the best option for our well-being. His ways are always the best option. And so as a bit of a side note, I just wanna highlight that fear of God, the Proverbs say, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God is actually the beginning of wisdom. That doesn't mean we're afraid of God. It means we honor and revere him. And so wisdom acknowledges God has authority. God is my source, self is not source. God is my source. He is my authority. I'm really smart when I recognize that God's smarter. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have this perfect design, okay? And functioning within that design leads to our flourishing. But then we have a dilemma. We have an insurrection. We have a rebellion. Free will goes bad. And I don't have time to go into it It's in the Foundations book. I teach about it over several weeks in the internship program about the fall of Lucifer and a third of the angels, which is actually so important for us to understand in the scheme of things. But I don't have time, so please get a copy of this or sign up for internship. Um, Do your own study. But we have a rebellion. And Lucifer Falls, his name was Lucifer, I won't go into it, and he is now Satan, and he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden to deceive them and wants to lead them away from God as well. The thing is, my friends, is that we are susceptible to deception. What a beautiful sound across the room because we all know it's true. We are susceptible to deception. And so true to his name the deceiver Adam goes uh, sorry satan goes to Eve and tries to take her down the same path he went down himself he deceives her and his and deception listen i'm helping you out deception is still his number 1 tool his number 1 tool he will use Our thought life. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And I want to say, if you have a thought that contradicts God, bind it up, reject it, and replace it with a godly thought. Don't sit with that thought. Don't set up a tea party and dwell with that thought. Bind it up, reject it, and replace it. Joyce Meyer says you don't have to own every thought you think. She says, think about what you're thinking about. What's it called? Metacognition, I was informed after the last service. Think about what you're thinking about. The enemy will use our thought life. The enemy will use other people who are themselves deceived. The enemy will use our pride He'll try to appeal to our desire for greatness, power, and independence. He'll use our fear, fear of being harmed or suffering a loss of some kind. But remember this, always remember, God knows what's best for your flourishing. And remember that Satan hates God and he hates you. So he will do anything he can to prevent you from knowing God. He'll do anything he can to prevent you from learning about God. He'll do anything he can, and if today isn't like this, I don't know what is, to prevent you from being engaged in godly community. He'll do anything he can to stop you getting here on a Sunday every single week. If he can't lure you with the weather, he'll make your car break down. He'll make you have a fight with your spouse or you'll feel under the weather. He'll use anything he can to prevent you from being engaged in a godly community. You've got to catch him in the middle of the game. Come on, come on now. He'll make you question what God said. Did God really say that? Have you ever wrestled with that? He'll make you question what you know about God. And he'll distract you from pursuing and resting in God. And so he sows these seeds just as he did with the woman trying to lead her down the path of rebellion and so they eat they eat the wrong fruit and the consequence gets ushered in they eat and nothing happens because didn't god say if you eat it you will surely die but we're still alive so satan must be right except they didn't realize that they were immediately suffering a death of the most devastating sort separation from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you. God is a holy God, which means he can't stand in the presence of sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. So the moment sin gets ushered in, we are separated from him we're separated. It's a grievous thing. And when it comes to this scenario, Romans 6 tells us the wage or the price tag of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The ultimate death is a separation from God who is the source of life. When we step out of from God's covering, we step out of the source of life and we start ushering death into our lives. Sin brings enmity between us and God and we become enemies of God. God didn't do it, we did it. Why does God send people to hell? He doesn't. We choose it. All the fear of All the paranoia and panic we see in the world today are a direct result of sin. That none of that was intended to exist. Imagine a world with no fear, no paranoia, no propaganda. Imagine a world with no anxiety. That's God's plan. All the fallenness we see in the world around us and in our lives is a direct result of sin. And when we choose opposed to God, we separate ourselves from him. Church, we have two options. When we choose, we either choose God or anything else. It's either God or everything else in the world. It's either him, one, him and him alone, his ways, his intention, his word, his promise, his design, his standard, his call, his anointing, his covering, his life, his protection. It's either him or an innumerable host of other options, but they're all not God. And the enemy will use any one of them. That's our choice, God or anything else. Some of them are really obvious. Some of them are really subtle. And so he's a just God. And so every action has a corresponding reaction, just as he said. He was clear. He was clear. And so he comes and he addresses the deceiver and his pawn, the snake, He addresses the woman and he addresses the man. And man's sin has affected not only mankind but the whole earth. Suddenly the whole earth is affected by death. We have thorns and thistles. We have extreme weather conditions. We toil and we struggle. The whole world is now subject to the separation from God. When man rejected God, he rejected the perfect gift God had given him in creation. And man was never intended to die. We were intended to live forever. And we still do, but in the garden, we were never meant to die. That's why even when we celebrate the most beautiful Christian life at a funeral, it's still hard. Because death is, at its core, a foreign concept to our design. And so sin has a heavy price tag. Physical death, which was never intended, and eternal separation from God. Here is the crux of it: church. Outside of our design, we start to break down. That's it. Outside of God's perfected plan for us, we start to break down. Why does God send people to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, he said in Deuteronomy, I place before you life and death. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. And so anytime we choose something outside of the design of God, we sin. Anything that falls short of God's standard is sin. We see it over and over in Scripture, and it affects us. And so the door then was opened into all mankind. Adam and Eve ushered in death and sin for all of us. We are now all descendants of Adam, and we are all subject to the fallen world. And so you may have heard the concept, the first Adam and the second Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus at the cross, the first and second Adam. So Adam ushered everything in, all the death into the world, Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the, uh, the world and death through him and thus separated all men because all have sinned. Man in the garden was the first Adam. Jesus at Gethsemane and on the hill of Golgotha was the second Adam. And Jesus put right everything that Adam made wrong. We'll get to that. So we have this dilemma. We have a rebellion. And so God comes and offers a way around it, a circumvention. He's like, okay, so now that we're in a mess, here are 10 commandments. And he offers us 10 commandments. And can we just read these and agree that if the world just lived by these 10 rules, it would be a 100 times better? Okay, let's look at it. I am the Lord and you shouldn't have any other God before me. Don't take my name in vain. Remember to keep one day a week holy before the Lord and rest and worship and have communion with me. Honor your father and mother. Let's just do that. Let's just do that. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. What does that mean? Stop gossiping. Oh, wow. Imagine a world without gossip. How wonderful would that be? Or slander or false witness. Don't be jealous for your neighbor's wife or for your neighbor's goods. How awesome would all that be if the world just used that as a code again? But we see those 10 commandments then become 600 plus laws that you have to live by in order to get right with God. And it's a kind of solution, but not quite. It's still part of the dilemma because it's only a temporary fix. And what I love, though, is that not only does he give us these laws and this opportunity to make things right, he also sends the prophets over and over and over again in our history to warn us and bring us back. Ah, oh. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, verse 29. And yet the people of Australia kept asking, how could a loving God send people to hell? It's kind of what it says there. They're asking, the Lord isn't doing what's right. And he responds, O people of Israel, it is you who are not doing what's right, not I. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit for why should you die? Who sends who? Where? Our sins take us where we don't wanna go. Ezekiel 20, the people have rebelled against me and refused to obey my decrees. They wouldn't obey my regulations even though they would have given them life. Second Chronicles, the Lord, the God of their ancestors repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them for he had compassion on his people and his temple But they mocked the messengers of God and despised their words. Jeremiah 33 I would no more reject my people than I would change the laws that govern night and day. As unlikely as it is that the sun's not going to come up tomorrow, that's how unlikely it is that God will ever reject you. Who sends who where? Our choices our choices the wretched thing about being deceived is that you don't know that you are that's the definition of deception you don't even know that you are and that's why all of us have to come daily Into the presence of God in all humility and surrender with a broken heart and a contrite spirit in the hand of a loving God to be broken down and rebuilt because we don't even know the areas of deception in our own lives. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal those things to us, which is why we need a move of the Spirit every time we get together. Every time we open the Word, every time we worship and pray, we need the Holy Spirit to come to reveal to us areas of deception we don't know about. And the safest and wisest place to be is in the Word of God. If you want to safeguard yourself from deception, be planted in the Word of God. I wrote this down in my journal this week. I suspect that the reason people don't read the word of God is because they choose to avoid accountability. Unfortunately, ignorance will not be a defense. So we have the design and we have the dilemma, the consequence we have an answer. This is what I wanted to get to, the good bit. We have an answer, an intervention, Jesus. Jesus. So you remember when Adam and Eve made their choice and they were suddenly ashamed and estranged from God. They suddenly knew they were naked and they were embarrassed and ashamed. So what did they do? They made garments for themselves made out of fig leaves. But God wasn't, that wasn't Adequate. So he came looking for them and what he did was he took an animal and killed it and made skins, garments of skin for them. And this is, this is where doctrine is so powerful because it's only when we can join all the dots that we understand. This animal had to die in their place because the wages of sin are death. Someone has to die. It's a life for a life. It's, a fig leaf is not going to cover your shame. And it's, it's just humanity over and over again. I'm going to make right my own mess. I'm going to make my own fig leaves. And God's like, it doesn't work like that. And so he kills an animal, blood is shed, and he makes garments for them. The first substitutionary death in the Garden of Eden and so we see that in Genesis 3. And, and so he takes this animal and he sheds its blood. But nothing of our own efforts, no sowing leaves together can ever make up for sin. Only the work of God through sacrifice, the killing of an animal in our place can make right the grievous effects of our wrongdoing. And so we have Jesus. Because we know all the way through the Old Testament that that was only a temporary fix. And it needed to be done every year because an animal's an animal. Like an animal's not going to adequately substitute you. And so it needed to be an appropriate sacrifice in our place. And so God in flesh, fully man, fully God, comes and dwells with us. Absolute perfection. No sin. And offers his body and His blood for us. It's called atonement, and I teach it for four weeks in internship. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. Kevin Connor defines atonement as at one with God. Jesus' work was atonement, Jesus' sole purpose was to make us at one with God again, to restore the separation to close the gap again. And so we see Jesus come, fully God, fully man, perfect, sinless, blameless. And he stands up in the temple and he quotes Isaiah, the prophet, the prophets. And he says, he's handed the book and he opens it up to the spot in Isaiah that's prophesying him. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I want to tell you, this is Jesus to your life. This is Jesus to you. He read it out and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and he starts about his ministry and he goes to the cross and many people ask why did Jesus have to die such a gruesome death and it's a very good question he was tortured he was crucified and when we place all the pieces together we realize he was the perfect life for a life at the cross Justice and mercy kiss. Justice because someone had to pay. Mercy because you're no longer that person. God is a just God. Imagine if you went out into the car park and you realized that one of my children, when they flung the door open, had hit your car and damage the side of your car, I would be liable to pay for those damages. That's the way justice works. When there's damage done, someone pays the price. And at the cross, what Jesus is saying, the cost of your sin is life. It's death. Someone has to die, and you're actually the one liable to foot that bill. That's justice. But mercy says, I'm going to do it in your place. And I'm going to over exceed that payment because I've never sinned. Christ, who was without sin and knew no sin, gave himself up as an offering for each of us. This is Jesus. So who sends who to hell? we have salvation it's our choice again two gardens remember we had a choice in Eden we also have a choice at Golgotha we choose again Billy Graham said this in the second coming which is yet to come we will no longer be afforded the privilege of choice if we delay now it will be too late and if and we will forfeit forever the gracious ministry of the angels and the promise of salvation to eternal life further on he says our final destiny will be determined by whether we have received or rejected jesus christ i'm sorry is this too heavy this morning We choose. We choose. God's given us everything we need for flourishing in this life and the next. And he's saying, stop. Turn from those ways. Why would you allow them to destroy you? Come back. Come back. And the prophets have forewarned us and pastors and teachers have stood in front of us. I know firsthand that it is not a popular thing to stand in front of someone and say, you're destroying yourself. So many people go, well, I just don't agree with that. Okay. 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 But we choose. Jesus, one purpose was to die as a substitute, paying off your debt and mine. For the purpose of of restoring us back to a relationship with God to reconnect connect us where we'd allowed separation. In John 15 verse 16, God says this, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He always chooses us. He always chooses us. John 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved. And so the answer is Jesus, but the answer also is revival. Malachi 3. Man, if you want to know what's up, you need to read the prophets. And buckle your seatbelt in. Malachi 3 says this, Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. He's talking about Jesus, 400 years before Jesus. And then the Lord you are seeking, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches the clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. Revival, church. Revival is what we're all praying for and crying out for. But we always want it to happen to someone else because it's painful. We want it to happen out there in the world, but do you know what? All the prophets who wrote about revival were not writing to the world. They were writing to the people of God. And they're all saying, turn from your ways.